Hello from Austin. Welcome to episode 192 of the National Security Law Podcast. We're brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. It's Thursday evening, January 21st, 2021. It's a whole new ball game. I'm Bobby Chesney. I'm Steve Lottie. You mean because of the Francisco Lindor trade? <laughs> that that was the first sign of good news. But the second <laughs> sign is the fact that tonight, Steve, we're mostly going to talk about national security legal issues of the conventional, traditional type. We've got all sorts of run-of-the-mill things and only limited glimpses of the more fundamental uh unexpected topics of the past four plus years and it's yeah i actually i don't think we have any constitutional crises to cover on tonight's episode holy cow well maybe it's never too late we do have an epilogue no doubt for the trump administration coming up once it's clear about when the senate will engage the articles of article of impeachment um but for now we're going to be back to the regular programming for the first time in a long time we've got military commission Developments, I mean, right on cue, right? The the outset of the administration, right out of the gate, we get a new case, or it's an old case that has had trouble getting out of the gate, but it's had a big new development. Um, gosh, what else are we going to talk about? We have, a, we have a variety of circuit court developments across an array of cases, including your old favorite, that old Chestnut Larrabee. But we've got Muthana and Zaidan. We've got WeChat, and we've got an update on that oral argument. Border wall updates, uh, Biden administration national security position updates, including the legal dimensions of, of one of the more complicated ones. Uh, who's the NSA general counsel topics? That's a little holdover from last administration. Um, maybe some dogs that didn't bark and some frivolity that might. Did I miss anything? Just, just that, like, this is like why we originally had this podcast. <laughs> Good idea. That there's fascinating, important, and and debatable national security legal developments, and we gotta we gotta air them out, and we're gonna get to do that tonight. This is pretty great. Uh, should we jump right in? Let me just say in advance that I, I have a I have a pug next to me tonight. So if you hear some some pug noises, you know, Roxy says hi. Ro- Roxy's my special guest tonight. Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. All right, Roxy, glad you're with us. Listeners, glad you're with us. Uh, keep spreading the word. I, I said, I think at the beginning of the year that my goal was uh, to spread the audience a bit, get us closer to 15,000. Now, the night of January 6th, our emergency podcast that night uh, went way over over that benchmark. I don't know that we're going to actually be able to uh, keep that up over time. I don't want the country to be in the sort of circumstances. I was going to say, I, I feel like our two, our two best episodes ever insofar as like um, um, listeners was the night Comey was fired and and the night of the insurrection. And you know what? I, I, if that's what it takes to get our listenership up, I'm, I'm cool being irrelevant. I'm with you. I'm with you. All right. Well, Karen, Karen just shouted that, that, that we only had a good turnout for that episode because she was on it. Yeah, well, that's that's true. That was like the best special guest ever. She got she got she got fan mail about that, and I was like, "Are you kidding me?" That doesn't surprise me in the slightest. Yeah. Um, okay, the military commission process. I got an email late this afternoon. DoD sort of press updates. Charges referred in the military commission proceeding against a trio of defendants. You look under the hood. This is the Bali bombing and the Jakarta Marriott. I think it was Marriott. Jakarta bombings. These are the Indonesian defendants of Gitmo. Um, I don't know how much you remember the the particulars of the multiple false starts they've had 
charges have been uh, preferred, but not approved, as I recall it, at least once, maybe twice before. So um, can you unpack it all, why it's been difficult to get out the door, the basic charges, which involve a lot of killing of civilians, if you accept the armed conflict framing, this isn't on its face presenting as one of the trickier proceedings. So what's been the holdup? Um, it's a good question, Bobby. I mean, I think, so first of all, it's worth stressing that so far as we know, the three detainees at issue, um, Ensep Nurjaman, Mohammed Nazir bin Lep, and Mohammed Farouk bin Amin, um, were all subject to the CIA torture program. Um, and so these are, you know, as opposed to Hadi al-Iraqi, who has a different history and a different legacy, these are cases that from the start have been clouded, I think, for lack of a better word, right, by by the the CIA's role, by how that complicates things. Um, you know, we've also talked about just how, um, I'm trying to think of a polite term, how much of a quagmire the military commissions have gotten themselves into. And so I think that of itself has been reason to push back against pursuing, um, you know, some of these charges. Um, but actually, the, the specific charges that were um, uh, referred by the convening authority today are not, at least at first blush, on the outer limits of what the military commissions ought to be trying. I mean, we've we've talked before about how one of the big jurisdictional questions is whether they can try things that aren't international war crimes, like in inchoate conspiracy, like material support, and or whether they can try pre-9-11 offenses, like the USS Cole bombing in Nishiri, but here we have post 9-11, you know, terrorist attacks um, where the charges include, so conspiracy, okay, but murder, attempted murder, intentionally causing serious bodily injury, terrorism, attacking civilians, attacking civilian objects, destruction of property and accessory after the fact, which the, the DOD press release says all in violation of the law of war, which is a little self-serving. But at least some of that, Bobby, is, is, is heartland, you know, law of war stuff. Yeah, I, I completely agree that with the qualifications surrounding the endless debate over the status of conspiracy as a prosecutable offense under international humanitarian law, the, the underlying offense is there's, there, this is exactly what you would expect um, might be the type of use for a military commission proceeding if you accept the larger framing of armed conflict as well. And then I guess there's the organizational wrinkle. So th- this is these are... Uh, alleged members, um, in, I would say pretty obviously, members of Jama'a Islamiyah, yeah. uh, and, and at a time and place in which I think the general view, pretty widely accepted, don't know that it's contested, had become affiliated with the larger Al-Qaeda network. Um, does that suffice to bring it within the scope of the AMF? I certainly think yes. I can imagine some people think maybe no, but I don't have the impression that's what was holding the charges up previously. My suspicion, and, and I certainly don't think the the resistance out of the Office of Military Commissions itself and the convening authority was in any way the quagmire concern because that goes to the whole process they're part of. Um, I think I suspect it's what you're saying, um, the, the role of statements or the need to possibly rely on information that might trace back to interrogations that were conducted while in CIA black site locations and subjected to what uh, our new DNI has just testified as confirming was torture, um, that that might present 
case uh, provability issues. That's speculation. Maybe that's what was holding it up. The prosecutors didn't think so, but who knows? In any event, someone decided that one nice way to welcome the new administration was to move forward on this on its first full day in office. Uh, do you read anything into that? Is that just like, hey, that just happened to be when it came up? Or is this some sort of weird shot across the bow, kind of boxing in the new so administration? That, right, I mean, that's that's move quickly to shut it all down? This is the part of the story that I find most interesting, which is why the hell did they do it today? Um, why not? I mean, not two days ago, why not? Or a month ago. From now. Right. Right. On the first full day of the Biden administration, the convening authority refers the first new charges in the military commissions in a few years. Um, I, you know, I, if it's a coincidence, it is an awfully suspicious coincidence. Um, it feels like they're trying to box him in, doesn't it? Yes. It really feels like this is an – I don't think it's a shot across the bow because he's still the president and the commander-in-chief. It's just you know, requiring Biden to spend even more of his precious capital – to deal with the military commissions where, you know, he's made noises quite, I think, clearly, but not, not sort of loudly about having the same agenda for Guantanamo as um, President Obama. Um, you know, General Austin in his confirmation hearing, in his letters for the record, has talked about continuing to want to close Gitmo, you know, ramping up the PRB process. I mean, all, you know, there seems to be a lot of continuity here from mid-Obama policy. And so a move like this, there may be another story for this, Bobby, but this really seems to me like, you know, DOD saying, hey, we're still proceeding. And and I have two problems with that. One is, um, why not give the new, you know, why not give folks a chance? I mean, the, you know, the acting general counsel of DOD just started yesterday, Beth George, who, by the way, is fantastic. Um, you know, this is a this is a quite a quite a way for Beth to have her first full day on the job. Right, question on that: Is Beth the acting GC, or is she a, appointed to principal deputy GC? I think both of those things are true. So, so, so there was an acting GC momentarily yesterday before oh, Beth so was that, born. That was just to bridge, okay. Right, but but my understanding is that Beth is now the principal deputy by appointment, and therefore the acting GC by sort of ordinary rule, DOD it, rules of succession. Right. I, I I just have to interpret all of this as, you know, there there are those who, of course, did want to proceed with this, and it feels a lot like the aim was let's get this approved before the new administration's machinery might result in uh, freezing any further steps on commissions. Well, and so then, the, so this is the other piece of this. So the other thing that that was in the news today about the military commissions was the new judge presiding over the nine eleven trial, um, extending deadlines yet again for the next rounds of motions. The funniest part, though, if I saw this right, I believe it was a thirty day extension, and I want to be like, I, you know, move the decimal place on that because you're just going to have to issue otherwise. Right. 10 you're, more. you're off by a factor of 10 there, buddy. Exactly. But, I stand but, by our earlier estimates on that. But so all this is to say that like, I find today's move exasperating in two respects. One, it seems like an obnoxious way of trying to saddle the new administration with a problem it doesn't want. But two, um, let's not forget the military commissions, and I'm sorry for saying this, suck. Right? I mean, they, they just, they suck. Like they're not, they're not good at accomplishing their goals, which you're, is you're not suggesting them. that they don't move expeditiously through cases and resolve them. And uh, I would never suggest such. I, I would never suggest such a thing as we mire oh, decade through, units of time, right? As we mire, th- I mean, I mean, like you know, the, 
Right. Well, uh, yeah, I won't repeat our, our usual song and dance about that. I, I will say that this just shows you it's a, it's the flip side of a coin that you and I both often admired under the last administration. I'm not saying this is morally equivalent in any way, but the the unitary executive ain't so unitary. And, the, and if this was exactly. a boxing in of the new administration, um, it's just example number 10 billion over time of how just because there's a new Article Two chief executive and and all the notional authority that goes with that, there are endless ways in which the, the practical realities of this multi-organization, massive, complex enterprise that is the executive branch uh, creates endless opportunities to, in fact, box in and it often flat out outmaneuver uh, the top person. And, and that was exercised to, I think, very laudable effect throughout the Trump years, uh, not as much as it probably needed to be, but but for the greater good many times. But the reality is once once we surrender the principle that that sort of outmaneuvering should not happen in a pure unitary executive system, uh, then, then you're going to have certain situations where it's unfolding in ways that at any given moment, one or the other of us might not like. So a little bit of an example of this, it's not that they can't undo it. It's not, it's not something that can't be uh, gotten around. Um, maybe it was sort of a way of just sort of putting these chips on the table before the game got ended. We'll see. I'll, just, I'll, I'll say real quickly, but I mean, you know, the one thing that the unitary executive can do is fire people. And, and if this was done deliberately to try to mess with the Biden administration, it seems to me that whoever did it might not be long for their job. Um, maybe whoever did, did it wasn't already going to be long <laughs> for their job. And so they figured, like, okay, if that's the cost, no problem. I want to get in our get in our work out there. And, you know, coming back to the underlying uh, substance of it all, in a comparatively meritorious case, I mean, this is not one that's – this isn't somebody who's alleged to have been a member who trained at 1.5 years before 9-11, stuff like that. These are people who, for whom, if the allegations are true, certainly need to be convicted expeditiously somewhere. My only concern is that the track record, as you say, of the commissions sucks, and I'd, I'd rather see a more likely uh, process unfolding for these particular individuals. And I'll just say really quickly, just want to, one last thing. There are also practical costs to this, right? Because you know the office, the the the, the defense counsel's office, and the office of military commissions does not have infinite resources. And so oh, that's for sure. You no, know, the it's not like there are going to be new lawyers who are necessarily you know the, the budget doesn't expand because they've got yet another case to handle. And so this just also further taxes the already limited and strained resources of the military commissions, which have plenty of work to do as it stands with the nine eleven case and Nashiri and Al Iraqi. But what do I know? So one of the questions. This is it's so funny because I mean you and I were both very engaged in various ways and how things were going down at the beginning of the Obama administration where, you know, some of the same people uh, working these issues. Um, and it was such a surprise how open it turned out the, uh, both the, the democratic controlled Senate, especially Carl Levin, Senator Levin and uh, the Obama administration really were to giving the military commissions, you know, uh, a fair shot. Um, it obviously hasn't worked. It'll be so interesting to see how, if, and when the Biden administration decides to start spending some real capital to try to do anything other than what you described earlier as picking up the prior glide path, which is to say, um, allowing a degree of military commissions to move forward in the most 
most violence-oriented cases, and then relying on the PRB process, the Periodic Review Board process, which I think you and I are both assuming and talked about on a prior show. We should expect to see that juiced up and invigorated and perhaps some transfers. Um, Soon-to-be Secretary Austin will need to sign off on the conditions of release for those people who are cleared for transfer. But I'm expecting that we're going to start finally seeing some of that and we'll see a further whittling down, but like, like constantly dividing by half and never quite reaching zero, the, the population is going to keep getting reduced, but there's going to continue to be some hard cases that no one's quite able to or willing to spend the political capital on to make happen. I don't think Congress is ready to play ball in that nope. respect. Um, um, right, should, we say, should we say a word about Austin since you mentioned him? So- General retired Lloyd Austin, give us the update. What's happening with the? And I, I hate talking about waivers. What, some of the statutory override is really the better way to talk about it because there's, yes, no, I mean, there's right. no built-in waiver mechanism. Right, right. So um, a bill, I think the bill, the bill to exempt secretary designate secretary nominee whatever Austin from the statutory requirement that he be retired from the military for seven years before serving as secretary of defense. Um, got through both chambers today with large majorities, which clears the way for his confirmation hearing to go forward um, and his, you know, presumably successful confirmation to go forward. And so, you know, it looks like he'll be probably, you know, confirmed and sworn in perhaps as early as tomorrow, certainly about early next week, um, which just, you know, leaves me to reiterate, I have nothing but respect for General Austin. I have lots of concerns about the normalization of you know, overriding the statutory requirement every time we feel like it. It just, yeah, you, I, I generally share the civ mill relations concern. He did a, he did such a good job. I felt, and, it, and apparently a lot of people felt uh, about addressing that. I think he assuaged a lot of people just by dint of making a great personal impression, which is yeah. not nothing. Cause it's great to have a secretary who's just made a great impression uh, on the Senate. We'll see. I agree that at a certain point, it's just like, look, either either get rid of this rule so we quit having this as this farcical, uh, you know, process. Right. Get rid or, of the rule and, and let people who are retired take this on, or else take the rule seriously and, and don't grant exceptions unless there's some kind of exigency. Um, speaking of confirmation, should we talk about Avril? Yeah. So the first the first senior member of of the administration to first get anything. Yeah, well, exactly. The first shot out of the box. What a great first shot. Avril Haines is is our our new director of national intelligence. And it is it's just really nice to know, despite how some people can be so dismissive of ODNI as an institution, totally get that. Lots of real issues there to be worked through. But at the end of the day, we've just gone through the institutional ringer on the the circumstances of the intelligence community. It's, it actually was in, in, I, in my opinion, really good hands, relatively speaking, especially under Dan Coates. I thought Dan Coates did, did a, a fine job. Um, but since then, it's been really scary and problematic. And it's great to know Avril's in there uh, beginning to right the ship. And I'm sure it's been a huge comfort for everybody in the IC. Can we talk a bit about Senator Cotton? Uh, I can't wait to hear what he's done. I don't know what the connection is. So there was a period, there was like a three or four hour period yesterday where Cotton was making noises about holding up Haynes's confirmation, um, which apparently like, you know, they needed some kind of, 
unanimity to get to to skip some procedural hurdle. Um, what was because he because he was dissatisfied with her answer to a question about accountability for those who were responsible for CIA torture. Um, in particular, for the fact that she had the temerity to suggest that maybe you know accountability was an important um, uh, uh, quality for the agency to 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 to, to support. Um, well, I don't I don't know. I have no no brief for Cotton, but I am curious to know because I didn't hear about this. Had she said anything about reopening some kind of internal process? No, she gave she gave a very careful, very diplomatic answer to a question about like Cotton was looking for a commitment that there would be no prosecutions. And that's not her, that's not her call. Well, first of all, it's not her call. Second of all, her answer was, I thought, very skillfully diplomatic in in suggesting that she's focused on, you know, now and today, but that she but that she also thinks that the agency, you know, that the agency ought to ought to have a culture of accountability. Anyway, all this to say, this is rich coming from a guy who just voted to confirm as the previous DNI a person who not only didn't meet the statutory requirements, speaking of statutory requirements, of, quote, extensive national security expertise, but who had lied about his lack of extensive national security expertise. And so for Cotton to turn around, and Cotton was one of the 49 yay votes to confirm Ratcliffe as DNI, for him to turn around and say, I can't believe she might have the temerity to think that we might want to prosecute people who break the law, therefore I'm holding up her confirmation. I mean, he had, he ended up dropping it after it provoked a pretty quick firestorm politically. Well, I mean, but- that, that sort of like temporary hold, I, th- I think is relatively commonplace as a political maneuver. And I understand it as a political move, which I don't like, but I understand it through that lens. I'm not too surprised he decided to try to put himself on the record since he cultivates a larger image of being the the tough on national security type stuff. I'm not surprised he saw yeah, the, pro torture, the pro torture lobby. I don't know that that's how he'd put it. Suspect probably not, but he would want to put himself on the side of like, I'm def- I'm defending line personnel who were given this terrible task and I'm defending them. I'm not surprised. But so as you say, he he dropped it in the end. I, so I take it he was a yes vote in the end. I mean, almost everybody did. Say I didn't that. even look. The vote was 80. The vote was 84 to 10. But yeah. but I, I just so, so I, people said no, which is fascinating. Well, there is that. But a lot of I people just, want to be able to say their constituents. Yeah, I voted against all of Biden's nominees just because. Let me pull up the roll call. I am curious about the roll call vote. Um, but the, um, so who are the 10 no's? The 10 no's were, um, Blackburn, Braun, Cruz, Ernst, Haggerty, Hawley, Lee, Marshall, Paul, and Rich. Uh, all the, all the, so Cotton actually was a yes at the end. Um, yeah, but interesting. Uh, well, just, it's also, it's it's hard to know what to make of when you have a clear passing confirmation way over the margins. It creates a lot of space for a handful of members to decide, all right, then I'm going to do, I'm going to do something so I could be seen on record with a particular constituency. You've just identified the sort of the members of the, the uh, increasingly of late Trumpist caucus <laughs> within, I, the, but, but, within but, the Republican but, Senate. Caucus. I mean, there there aren't enough there aren't enough words for hypocrisy to explain some of the things we're going to be hearing from Republican senators about confirmations in the, in the coming weeks and months, given what they given how much they rolled over over the last four years. No doubt. 
I, I don't question. I, I won't argue with you about that. Um, I'll, I'll just say that, um, that I'm not terribly surprised by hypocrisy in general in political in Congress. Um, I'm not saying I'm surprised. I'm just saying, like, you know, at least be better about it. At least yeah. be more subtle. And to be clear, I'm not saying don't call it out. I think that everybody, everybody who took a particular position at any given point in time of either party, whether we're talking about during the Obama years or the Trump years, um, should always be called out when they're going the opposite direction. Uh, do we want to say anything about uh, you mentioned there's a new uh, mixed medical commissions uh, directive of some sort from the erstwhile secretary of the army, a McCarthy memo. Yeah. So Carol, Carol Rosenberg, who, you know, is like the, the dean of the Guantanamo press corps and just always gets these amazing scoops. Um, she so is Carol the Guantanamo her- press corps. What's that? She is the Guantanamo well, press corps. There is that too. Um, you are the brute squad. <laughs> See, I was wondering if you're going to pick that up. Well done. I get an assist on that. Um, so um, we had talked a little bit in the past about the case of Muhammad Al Qatani, um, who's a 45 year old Gitmo detainee, um, and who was tortured at Guantanamo. Um, who, by all accounts, is severely mentally uh, disabled. And um, there was a, a district court ruling. Gosh, early last year. Um, ordering uh, uh, the government to provide Katani with access to something called a mixed medical commission um, to provide basically an independent, neutral assessment of his medical and psychological condition and of whether, you know, what kind of care he needed. Um, And a big part of that ruling by Judge Collier um, was that this was required by Army Regulation 190-8, um, which is the longstanding internal army regulation that governs prisoners of war and other wartime detainees. And of course, a big part of Judge Collier's holding was that AR-190-8 doesn't just apply to Gitmo, but is judicially enforceable. Um, the, the former, I think, Bobby, we had long assumed. Um, certainly the Obama administration took the position that it applied. The, the, the notion that it was judicially enforceable was a new development. So the government had tried to appeal that to the D.C. Circuit the D.C. Circuit dismissed the appeal because Collier's order was not a final order. And so the, there wasn't a sufficient basis for an interlocutory appeal. Um, and so the case was proceeding in the district court. And then on January 11th, the secretary of the Army, um, uh, Ryan McCarthy, um, issues a memo where he basically rewrites the regulation to exclude Guantanamo. Um, and so thereby basically vitiates the 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 March 2020 ruling, because if AR-190-8 no longer actually applies to the Guantanamo detainees, then it can't create a judicially enforceable right to a mixed medical commission. That would seem to do it, although I would expect that we'll probably see that uh, reversed and uh, undone by whoever is going to be the new secretary of the army. Do you think that's likely to sort of restore the prior status of the issue? Um, I don't know. I mean, I think the first question is going to be whether the whether the change in the regulation can even be applied retroactively, right? I mean, so insofar as you could argue that Katani had a right to a mixed medical commission already, you know, does it raise additional issues to revoke that retrospectively as opposed to just prospectively? But like the like the referral of charges in the Bali and Jakarta cases, Bobby, I also think this is just yet a further move to you know. Uh, trap is not necessarily the right word, but to sort of, you know, 
<laughs> pile pile stuff onto the Biden administration that it has to dig out from underneath before it can even try to do any of its own initiatives. So I I think that the the Indonesian defendants at Gitmo, like I said earlier, that really is a sort of a you know little sharp elbowed try to box in the new administration deal that I don't think is so cool. Um, stuff like what uh, Secretary McCarthy did. Every administration ends with waves of of leadership figures who are about to head out the door trying to you know put the final touches on this or that policy that they know will not be advanced by the next administration. I'm less offended by that. But to me, the more interesting issue here is uh, the propriety of treating AR 190-8, Army Regulation 190-8, as, as sort of judicially enforceable in the first instance, bearing in mind that uh, the Geneva Conventions themselves aren't. And I think there might even be language in Army Regulation 190-8 specifically about or at least attempting to disclaim judicial enforceability, not conferring individual rights, but rather, um, uh, well, all the usual type of disclaimers like that. That's not to say that that's binding and dispositive, but I, I'd need to go look this up. I don't know that there's ever been any other judicial ruling claiming that this is, in fact, a judicially enforceable source of, uh, of law. No, no. It, it strikes me as not quite right in that respect, but I have to say I didn't research that to talk about it right here. I, I, so we, we spent some time talking about Judge Collier's ruling when it came out last March. I'll just say that I think one can believe that the medical you know, attention rules in the regulation ought to be enforceable in some mechanism without thinking that the entire regulation also has to be likewise enforceable. I mean, but I also just, I mean, there's a broader point here, which is just like, you know, the insuff- the inadequacy of medical care for the detainees, I-, I realize is not a high question of concern for a lot of people, but they're not getting any younger. Um, they certainly should be getting great medical care. I, I, I'm not convinced that they aren't getting good medical care, but again, not an area I've studied. Um, hey, should we pivot now? We've got all these DC Circuit and Ninth Circuit cases to talk about. Yeah, speaking of, speaking of Gitmo. Okay, so we've we've got uh, let's talk about maybe Muthana first. Sure. Uh, Hoda Muthana, we've talked about on this show before, a woman who claimed American citizenship, who has been in Syria, um, if I recall correctly, Steve uh, was. Wait, can, I, can, I, can, I, can I be yeah. can I be can I be pedantic for a second? Yeah, please. She, she didn't just claim American citizenship. She had a U.S. passport issued by the State Department after the State Department determined that she was, in fact, a U.S. citizen. Well, and now there's a D.C. Circuit ruling saying that's not the case, and she's not. I know, but, but, I, but I, I, it's, I just, it's, it's worth I, saying I, that, like, the story begins with the government's initial position being that she was a citizen. Not their initial litigation position. So In this case, no, but before but I, don't, that, like, I don't think we should have to argue about – whether the the opening line I casually used is is precise enough. Let's just get to the substance. Hoda Mathana was in uh, Iraq, married not once but twice to Islamic State fighters. She has a child. Uh, She wanted to come back to the United States. You quite correctly said she has a U.S. passport. Um, But in this situation, of course, not surprisingly, there was additional scrutiny. And she uh, soon found that the new position, the Trump administration position was, no, you're not an American citizen. You can't come back. Her father, and her father's an important figure in the story because her father had been, I believe it was Yemen, where he was from, a Yemeni diplomat, but in any event, a foreign diplomat 
who had been in diplomatic status in the United States when she was born, or at least there, there's a fuzziness to it. His time in office- is a factual dispute. Yeah, his, his time in office, I believe, had ended. He hadn't let, yet left the country. So he's in the wind down period of his diplomatic posting. And that's the window into which he was born. So it's almost like written up like a law school exam to kind of get into the gray zone a little bit. Um, in any event, the birthright citizenship argument for her citizenship rested on that. And the government now appeared in court, well, responded in court to her father's attempt to litigate on her behalf to try to force the government to repatriate her. Um, not just to allow her back in, but to, to assist in the repatriation. Um, the government said, well, actually, it was a mistake to ever give her a passport. She's not an American citizen because it's not enough to be birthright, uh, to be born in the United States as a territorial matter. Uh, it's the subject to the jurisdiction thereof, a clause which I think most scholars agree excludes the children of accredited diplomats who are here in a uh, status that is uniquely not subject to U.S. jurisdiction as in the way that everyone else is. Uh, Judge Rao, writing for the D.C. Circuit, has now determined that, uh, if I read it at a glance correctly, Steve, you'll correct me if I'm wrong, that that was correct, that she does not have uh, U.S. citizenship and thus that there's no standing in this case. Is that about the size of it? I wouldn't say no standing, but just that like, yes, that, that, the, that there's no, I mean, the holding is that her father was still covered by diplomatic immunity at the time of her birth. And therefore she's not a citizen by birth. Now it's worth stressing this case started because the Trump administration, the president and secretary Pompeo both claimed that they were revoking, like both made public statements to the effect that they were revoking her citizenship. Um, that's, you know, and so Muthana's really thing, is it just, Executive revocation. So I mean, there is. I mean, there is expatriation under eight USC section. I think fourteen. Right, right. but they weren't invoking that authority. What they were really trying to—they were dressing up what really boiled down to: we're we're acknowledging or we're claiming we got it wrong before. Turns out you never were a citizen. It's not like she was a citizen, and then no, right. My, my point is that my point is that the story initially generated headlines. For, that were unrelated to what the legal fight ultimately came down to, right? That that it was actually a much more technical question about when her whether she was a citizen in, in the first place versus whether the government could take her citizenship away. Um, that sounds and, right. and 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 so the panel is and, and this is and so the reason why I wanted to spend a couple minutes on this is because the panel is unanimous that she's not a citizen, um, and they're unanimous because they think that you know the. Sort of, even though there are dueling documents from the State Department, right? They think that the sort of the better reading um, is that the later controls the the the, the earlier, um, right? As and and that there was no material issue of fact um, that the State Department's allowed to change its mind to change its mind the end. But what I think is really interesting about this case, and the reason why I think it matters beyond the very unique facts of Hoda Muthana's case, is there's actually a huge fight between Judge Rao in her majority opinion, which was joined by Senior Judge Santel, um, and Judge Tatel in his opinion that's only concurring in the judgment um, about how the majority gets there. Because Judge Rao goes on this really long, and as Tatel says, completely unnecessary tangent about why the later certification from the State Department was the, quote, formal, unquote, one, and the earlier one wasn't. Um, in a way that just, as Judge Hiddell points out, doesn't make a lot of sense. 
Um, you know, if the State Department issues a passport, if the State Department writes a letter saying, we've determined that your father's diplomatic community ended before you were born, you know, that may be incorrect. Tatel ultimately agrees that it is incorrect. But that's not, you know, like, uh, that doesn't cease to carry, that doesn't, uh, that doesn't stop being the official word of the State Department just because it's wrong. Um, yeah. And so my my concern about this decision is not the result, which I think is actually entirely understandable, if not if not correct. Um, my concern is the precedent setting for how courts are supposed to handle um, conflicting statements coming out of the State Department in the kinds of foreign relations cases where State Department statements often receive significant deference. I see. I, I agree that that's a really important general principle. It, it's such a weird case. You wonder. It's so easily distinguished, too, I suppose, if somebody really wants to. I mean, well, this, this was Taylor's, Taylor's point is why are we doing – like, Taylor's point is, listen, I'm with you. Like, we're, you know, we're all on the same page about the subsequent determination by the State Department being controlling here. Why are you spending 20 pages going down an unnecessary tangent to explain why you're discrediting the original determination? Yeah, that is a little bit weird. Do you, I mean, can you see any larger benefit, uh, any other likely to recur scenario in which this would really matter? Yeah, I mean, I mean, so imagine, imagine a context in which, like a, a a foreign official immunity case, Bobby, where different State Departments from different administrations take different positions as to whether an individual is entitled to foreign official immunity. One one of the contexts where it's still really important what the State Department's you know position is, even in private litigation, um, or a context in which someone's arguing for foreign affairs preemption of a state law. And the State Department's position, like it just it this opens the door to some really nasty disputes in circumstances in which there's a change in position from one State Department to the next, and it's not hard to imagine that being something that's going to be pretty relevant in the next couple of months and years. You think uh, the Solicitor General's office is uh, going to take an interest in this case? It, it presents in a really weird way because the government won. They won. Yeah. yeah. You think they're going to in any way try to? Or just leave this as a weird one-off that probably won't. I, mean, I don't think the SG is going to do anything proactive. I think the question is if and when Muthana petitions for rehearing on Bonk, yeah. you know, does the SG file a lukewarm opposition? Yeah, that's I think what we need to watch for. So that's our homework on that one. Yeah. Um, any any skinny on who's going to be the SG? Is that already? I don't think that's been determined, but maybe I missed it. So they've announced that um, Elizabeth Prelegar, um, who's a really really highly regarded, super experienced appellate lawyer in DC, she's been in, she's been named the principal deputy, basically the Jeff Wall job. And so she's going to be the acting SG until such time as a, a full-time SG is um, nominated and confirmed. So at least for the moment, she's going to be running the shop. Okay. That sounds sounds very reliable and solid choice. Uh, okay. Also the DC circuit, Zidon. What's going on in the Zidon case? Yeah, so we had talked, gosh, um, a while ago about this case um, where there was a whole question about um, these two um, these two folks who had been, at least as alleged in the complaint, repeatedly targeted for drone strikes um, in Syria um, and and sort of around in and around the, that part of the world in 2016. Um, and what was remarkable about the district courts, right, they had sued initially on the ground that they were allowed to challenge the, the, that they were allowed to sort of at least get discovery as to whether they had in fact been targeted. And the district court does this remarkable thing where it holds that one of them didn't have standing, but one of them did, right? The pro standing decision, um, uh, the one who had standing according to the the district court was Bilal Abdul Karim, um, a, a, a journalist, 
Um, and then the district court had dismissed the lawsuit under the state secrets privilege, um, which, you know, was sort of an interesting two-step that like first pro standing and then, you know, dismissal right, of the right, kind of generous from a judicial abnegation doctrines perspective and then, and then restrictive with the next move. Yep. So um, the D.C. Circuit on appeal, um, a panel of uh, Chief Judge Srinivasan um, and Judges Henderson and Millette um, uh, reversed, well, reversed the standing decision and held that, in fact, Kareem has no standing and thereby vacated the state secrets decision without getting to any of the any of the merits. Um, and in particular, what the court held was that the complaint fails to allege plausibly that any of the five aerial bombings were attributable to the United States um, and specifically targeted Kareem. In other words, the complaint didn't do enough to even establish that the relevant attacks were attacks by the U.S. Right. Well, in, in, in this is an environment in which there are a lot of attacks going on. The United States is by no means the only Air Force dropping bombs. So there's that. And then, as you say, also, if it was, yes, he was present near five strikes. He's in a war zone. Does that really mean he's being targeted? So I can't say I'm I'm too surprised by that outcome. It sounds actually right to me. Um, You know, so I guess I there really are two different holdings here. One is whether the, the things, whether they were fired by the U.S., the other is whether he was targeted. I, I have less of a problem with the court holding that he didn't plausibly allege that he was targeted than I do with him not plausibly alleging that it was the U.S. that fired them. I mean, I think... Why is that? Um, how many countries have drones that fire Hellfire missiles? Uh, can't quote you on that, but I, we're not the only ones firing missiles. No, 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 I know. But just, but, but that you don't, you don't have to... The, the question is not, are we the only one? The question is, is it plausible that five strikes with the same kind of weaponry in the same relative geographic area of Syria at that point in time, is it plausible that those strikes were launched by the U.S.? I'll just say, I find it a heck of a lot more plausible on the facts as alleged in the complaint that the U.S. was behind the strikes than that they were targeting him specifically. So this makes it, this draws attention to the civ proish nature of the analysis here. We're not asking what's the right uh, story in the abstract in terms of what's actually true. We're asking in a 12B6 motion to dismiss, or was it what? Was it 12B6, I assume? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. 12B6 or, or 12B1 is a one of jurisdiction, perhaps. Yeah. Either way, you got to assume it's true, the, the facts. But on the other hand, you're not allowed to just speculate and guess. Um, yeah. Well, I don't. I don't imagine this one's going any further. I think that was no, it. no. Oh, no, nor I, nor, nor I. It's just interesting because we had we had spent a lot of time talking about the sort of standing political question split back when the district court embarked yep. on that. Yeah. So that's the end um, of that one. One uh, last quick DC Circuit tidbit. Yeah, it's not the end of our DC Circuit roundup. Is strong tonight. So the, the government has formally noticed its appeal to the DC Circuit in Larrabee, um, which is uh. of course my um, enigmatic challenge to. <laughs> whether it's constitutional for the military to exercise court-martial jurisdiction over offenses committed by retired service members while retired. Um, this probably, I mean, the file a notice of appeal sometimes, Bobby, is just a placeholder because of the deadline. You don't want to let the deadline come and go, even if you haven't necessarily decided to press the appeal. I, I'd still be very surprised if they don't press the appeal. And so presumably the next step would be the D.C. Circuit formally docketing the appeal and then setting a briefing schedule. And then you can get back to work. Yay. I've been on vacation all this time, as you know. Exactly. You're such a slacker, Steve Vladek. 
That could be a show title, by the way. Episode 192. You're such a slacker, Steve Vladek. Steve is such a slacker. Uh, we'll no doubt come up with something crazier than that, but that's a that's a contender. Um, All right. Meanwhile, you have – so, so in, a, in a reversal of our normal roles, you have a Ninth Circuit update. I, exactly so. I'm in your old home turf. The Ninth Circuit heard oral argument in the, uh, the WeChat Users Alliance case. Um, so to put this in context, friends, you will recall that in one of the more sort of strange episodes, and that's saying something, in the final year of the Trump administration, he went to war with TikTok. And then when it became apparent that taking executive order action under IEPA against TikTok was looking- IEPA. IEPA. It was looking weird without taking similar action against WeChat, given that the grounds about the platform being a basis for monitoring communications and possibly for manipulation of content. If if it's true as to TikTok, it's more true as to WeChat probably. So on that theory, the WeChat suddenly became the object of, of an executive order as well under IEPA. Um, we're not going to recap all the details here. Suffice to say that everybody sued everywhere and the Trump administration, once again, demonstrating its remarkable ability by by overclaiming in general and by not earning trust in general, has has a remarkable track record for not doing as well as you expect the executive branch to do in cases where there's national security context. Um, the cases which involve, basically there's TikTok cases and WeChat cases. And some of them have been very successful so far. They're all heading up to appeals on IEPA statutory interpretation grounds because TikTok, TikTok and, of course, WeChat being communication platforms, at least in part, uh, at least arguably fall within the scope of the statutory exemptions involving uh, informational materials and the transmission thereof that's in IEPA. But that's not what this case is about. This case was decided... Uh, for preliminary injunction purposes by the district judge on straight up First Amendment grounds, which I tweeted extensively at the time it happened, struck me as in many detailed respects, just the wrong analysis. It was just incorrect in my view. So that issue was on the table before the Ninth Circuit uh, with Judge Nelson presiding, Judge Bybee and and, uh, former Chief Judge Schrader constituting the panel and, you know, the Ninth Circuit's really great about putting the oral arguments out there. It's very easy to access them. It was a fascinating listen um, in all the ways that a good oral argument might be. Uh, I want to give a tip of the hat to Thomas Byron, from the uh, who's from DOJ's appellate practice. He did a really good job. I don't just mean to say that because I agree with him on the substance, but I just thought as a matter of style, it was a, it was something I would recommend to students who may be listening because he was almost unnaturally calm and poised through the whole thing, had both the ability to to cite to pages in the record, but to clearly track and respond directly and immediately to the questions that were being posed, while at the same time not allowing himself to be entirely dictated to by the panel. So he was he was putting on a good performance of, of strong appellate advocacy. Uh, but in addition to giving him just a shout out, I want to just talk through sort of what were the issues they were hung up on and, and flag something that seemed to really have Judge Bybee's attention in particular. Um, I'll start with that. Judge Bybee took note of these other cases where the statutory ground 
uh, in the TikTok executive order context was being cited as a basis for enjoining the order. And he raised the question, you know, well, wait a minute, if that's the right answer also as to WeChat, then shouldn't we not be reaching the First Amendment question? Um, and this is the one area where I thought actually uh, that uh, Thomas Byron maybe didn't give as clear an answer, probably because he didn't want to give the ground as much as I'd be willing to give the ground. I think the right answer to that is um, whatever else is true, you've got to vacate the First Amendment ruling because it's wrong on the merits and has huge spillover consequences if you just leave it there. Um, And if you must, remand it and let the district judge this time come to a decision, which she did not do in the first instance on the IEPA question. Um, they ended up talking instead sort of at length about what I think is not likely to happen anyways, which is the idea that I think Thomas Byron was afraid Judge Bybee had in mind, which is that the Ninth Circuit might just decide to, uh, without the benefit of real briefing on the topic, um, go ahead and engage the really tricky and subtle IEPA questions and resolve it on that basis against the government. I don't think they were going to do that. Uh, I certainly don't think it would at all be justifiable if they did, because this is really tricky stuff. It needs briefing. Um, But that doesn't mean that they can't on this basis uh, be more directive with the district court and remand. I actually predict that's what's going to happen. Now, why am I so convinced the the First Amendment argument's bad? It boils down to this. The the speakers, the, the American users who strongly prefer WeChat as, as an ideal platform from their perspective as they portray it, that's great. I'm sure it is ideal from their perspective. That's not what the First Amendment predict, protects. It certainly does not make it a content-based restriction. This is a time, place, and manner restriction. And I think time, place, and manner law is pretty clear that you, you have to have some outlet for your speech, but it certainly doesn't have to be your outlet of choice. Um, the comparison to uh, those who really want billboards, because that is a uniquely advantageous in certain respects, communication medium for certain vendors when they advertise, um, how that's not a protected selection. Um, I think it's spot on applicable here. And, and I also think that just lurking in the background of all this is the fact that the reason there aren't uh, completely comparable services such as what Facebook could offer is because the Chinese Communist Party flat out forbids them in part in order to channel all the content into WeChat and to allow their own uh, home field player over whom they've got legal and practical controls, unlike anything that the U.S. government would have over U.S. companies. Um, it, it, it's crazy, the idea that that would be able to be converted into a First Amendment protection. All right, rant over if I said anything you want to shoot down by all means, but otherwise we can uh, jump onto a few more updates and get frivolous. Just that judge Nelson wasn't presiding because he's the junior judge on that panel. Okay. So uh, uh, I, my prognostication, it, I've, got, I've got, I've got to defend my nine circuit people. Do it. I think judge Schrader sounded pretty sympathetic to the WeChat Alliance folks. I don't think she was crediting. I don't, at least in the question, she sounded like she was listening too much to this idea that somehow this is the only way to communicate when in fact, there are lots of ways for people to communicate. Judge Bybee, I think was very skeptical on the first amendment argument, but was interested, as I said, in the, in the IEPA stuff. And judge Nelson was very interesting. You can't really tell because he was kind of playing devil's advocate throughout, but I think towards the end was, you could almost feel was beginning to see that there may be an IEPA problem here, but there's not really a uh, first amendment argument, but we'll see. Um, 
All right, so that's it for our circuit roundup, Steve. We've talked about confirmations. I have a, I have a quick SCOTUS, uh, SCOTUS thing too. Do it while um, I stand up to let my dog out of the room. Go. Ah, that's that's yeah. Well, Roxy's now sound asleep on the other side of our room. So um, we have obviously talked before about the border wall and about the faux national emergency that President Trump declared in February 2019, so that he could in my view, and the lower court's view, illegally repurpose military construction funds to use to build his border wall. Um, so Bobby, one of the one of the executive one of the 17 executive orders that President Biden signed on his first day in office yesterday was an executive order ending that national emergency um, and thereby freezing up the spigot of any additional funds for the border wall. Um, and I say all of this, you know, both to sort of close the loop on something we've talked about before, but also to flag that the very next oral argument the Supreme Court is scheduled to hear is Monday, February 22nd, in a case called Trump versus Sierra Club, which is the, you know, well, I guess now it's Biden versus Sierra Club, <laughs> right. um, in, in a case which is the federal government's appeal of the lower court decisions holding that Trump's repurposing of military construction funds was unlawful. And so it seems to me that this could be the very first of many candidates for context in which shifts in policy from one administration to the next are also going to lead to pretty significant shifts in ongoing court battles. That sounds right to me. Um, I'm not seeing or hearing any early signs, by the way, of any pitch by the Biden administration or plans by the Biden administration to uh, to lead strongly and publicly with a request for legislation altering the national emergencies and IEPA and other frameworks but I think that's not the right way to think about it. As much as many people during the Trump years were hoping there'd be this sort of like, that's the first order of business, you know, let's legislate all these new rules. I think watch the NDAA in particular late in 2021. And I think we'll start to see a lot more uh, provisions of that sort, sort of working in quietly. I, I think next year's NDAA is going to be fascinating, you know, to see, you know, how many of these kinds of structural forms. Um, you know, there was an OLC memo last week, Bobby, in the in the sort of flurry of end of administration OLC memos that took, to my view, a pretty expansive interpretation of how much the military could do at the southern border without running afoul of the Posse Comitatus Act. Really? Which I think we'll see. Oh, is that, is that out there? Is that something yeah. in the public document? Yeah. All right. That's in the ether. Um, Let's uh, try to remember to talk about that one next week in detail. Yeah, I mean it's pretty it's pretty technical, and I actually think you know of all the things Trump did, it's not it's not that high on the list of insanely controversial. But I do think it underscores just how how clear the events of the last four years and the last two weeks in particular have have driven home the need for reform of the Insurrection Act, the Posse Comitatus Act, the National Emergencies Act, all of these incredibly broad delegations of authority of the president that. We've always trusted political checks to constrain and that we ought to be less trustful of such checks about going forward. I think I think a number of people who are in the, okay, we need significant statutory reform in light of all these abuses, the, the kind you just described. Many people were hoping and assuming this administration would come in and be the executive branch that's willing to go there. Uh, and I think many other people thought a lot of people before they're in office, are the executive branch that's willing to go there. Barack Obama, you know, had talked a lot as a candidate about constraining the uh, imperial presidency, you know, that sort of rhetoric about George W. Bush. And I think you get in the administration and it, and it, it, those sorts of hopes tend to dry up. So I'm not so sure how much championing of too much, uh, sweeping structural reform we're ultimately going to see. 
So I think there's a difference between whether Biden should expend capital leading on these issues compared to everything else he has to do, and whether Biden will at least be supportive of congressional efforts on these issues. Because those to me are two very, like, you know, Jimmy Carter did not come into office with a broad agenda of structural executive branch reforms, but he sure as heck acquiesced in them when Congress passed them. And so, you know, I just, I wouldn't be too, to me, the burden is not on the Biden administration to propose cutting off its own power. The burden's on the Biden administration to accept those bills when they come across his desk. Um, I, I don't disagree with that at all. I think that's right. Um, hey, real quick before we move on, I should have said this in the context of my WeChat and TikTok litigation breakdown. Of course, the uh, the underlying executive order that declares a national emergency that triggers IEPA to begin with, which which was all the necessary conditions to open up the door towards the WeChat and TikTok orders, um, that was old executive order, or yeah. 13873, Securing the Information and Communications Technology and Services, or ICTS, supply chain, uh, which had been around for a little while and commerce had been charged with developing uh, regulations to implement it and create a system. The way to think about WeChat and TikTok was President Trump, in those targeted instances, jumped the gun on the system that commerce was building up and just directly sanctioned a couple of groups, as was his you know, apparent right, although it's been litigated. Well, uh, on the 14th, the Commerce Department did finally put out at least interim regulations. Um, we're not going to go over them in detail now, and in part because I'm a little reluctant to sink a lot of time into it because I'm not sure how well those are going to hold up over time with the change over to the new administration. But just for those who are really into this stuff, be aware, uh, and you can go on the Commerce website, there is an ICTS framework that's been for, put forward now. And this was after a long notice and comments period. Um, the little bit I've looked into this suggests that it's nothing too surprising or crazy as compared to what you might expect. So we'll see if there's anything more to say later. But enough about that for now. Let's see if we got any stones unturned. So I, I want to save the Michael Ellis story for another time because I actually think it requires a little more unpacking and also maybe more will come to light about the the, the the very, very late in the day efforts by the Trump administration to install Michael Ellis, a fairly controversial, I think, figure in a career civil service position at as NSA general counsel. But we'll, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll come back to that one. Yeah. I, I will note, I believe he was immediately put on administrative leave uh, the same day of the inauguration, or maybe today was the first one it happened. And then I think pending an investigation by the DOJ inspector general or the DOD inspector general, it's not, I, I lost track of which one. Although apparently that has to do not so much with this installation burrowing scenario, but with with just a, a coincidence of, of a different uh, concern. Yeah, although although if that investigation bears fruit, that of course could provide cause for firing him separate oh, from you know. No, no doubt about that. You just I, I'll say this about that whole episode: I don't understand how he himself could have looked at this and thought, "Yeah, that's worth my while." I should try to do this because there was never any question but that he would be on day one or within 24 hours, at least reallocated to other administrative duties and that he would never make it to the 24 hour mark on this. What was, what was the point? What's the point of a lot of this? I mean, what's the point of the NLRB guy who won't resign? I mean, I think, you know, it's just, there's a lot of, you know, the, the, the Trumpists are not all out of the federal government. Um, it's it's a not a not a truly in practice unitary deal. That's for sure. Um, all right, so 
why don't we, uh, if anyone's never listened to our show before, be advised, we always end with frivolity. Uh, if, you, if you're not down with that, that's cool. That's fine. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you later. Steve, um, okay, so the Mets, it had been looking so good. Then there was a little bit of a hiccup the other day. Uh, what, is, what is up with the GM? What, what the heck was that all about? The former GM. Yes. Okay, does that – we've all been excited for the Mets. Uh, they've got money to spend in sort of this new attitude. Francisco Lindor is such an awesome acquisition. Do we need to be concerned that, uh, from a pure baseball player personnel perspective that this unexpected change to the uh, general management is going to derail that? Or is it like, no, it's fine. It, that's not what matters. That's not what matters. Although I, I do think – I mean, I am you know all for – exposing the culture in which that kind of nonsense was allowed to happen. Well, let me be clear. I'm not remotely defending this. No, no, no. I hope it didn't sound that way. I'm just trying to say, like, okay, that was horrible. Glad he's gone. What does this mean for the player acquisition you know, it's, process? It's just, typical, it's just typical Mets. Like, they actually are having a good couple of weeks in the headlines, and then, you know, and then that happens. Um, I will say, so the, 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 the Mets ended up not winning the George Springer sweepstakes, and I actually am pretty happy with that, given how much money he ended up actually forcing the Blue Jays to pay. Yeah, I so I like George Springer. He's obviously got the postseason record. There's a little bit of the asterisk that hangs over that, although his, his he has enough of a of an extended asterisk, you might say. Yes, yes, yes. You can hear it. You might say uh, he has enough of a record to make clear that you know he's he's not a, entirely a creature of of the the cheating scandal. Um, but there's a little bit of a wrinkle, and you just kind of wonder. Um, how will he ho- will he hold up over time? Will he be quite what they just paid for? Because they paid for it. Like, you know, I actually don't know how it compares to Mike Trout's salary, but this was a lot of money. I'm not so sure about it. And I think it might have been, I don't know if he was at all considering the Astros, but I think the Astros were smart not, if they had the option, I think they were smart not to try to pay that level to keep him. But also, I mean, like the, Met, the Mets would have had a hard time re-upping Conforto. Um, they would have had, like, I mean, you know, if they, had, if they hadn't put, I mean, th- Money is not infinite, and so I think you know. I I was I was as impressed with the decision to not break the bank for Springer as I was with the trade to get Lindor. I mean, I think these are to me positive signs for a potentially successful baseball season ahead. Yep, I think I think that it's looking pretty good. They they seem rational um, <laughs> for the first time in generations. Um, how, how are that, the Knicks doing? I haven't looked at the Knicks. Are they any good? They're mediocre, but not terrible. All right, well, that's pretty good for the Knicks. Um, I don't know if you've been following. Uh, my beloved Spurs have really shown some signs of life of a cool variety. It's it was bad, you know, the past year, ever since he who shall not be named went off to the the Raptors and all the rest and sort of you know tanked the Spurs so badly. I, I felt just crushed by that and like, oh, how will they ever be good again? But the truth is, DeMar DeRozan's been a very solid piece, uh, and some of the young guys are really coming around. Um, and so I'm not claiming the Spurs are title contenders, but they're absolutely in the playoff hunt more quickly again than I think anybody thought would be the case. Lots of good guard play and the, the increasingly timeless LaMarcus Aldridge giving him a physical presence. So it's been, And I'm happy for Popovich especially uh, to see the Spurs hanging in there like that. So we'll see. Um, they need they need one more piece though I think to to get back into anything close to their former glories. Who else have you been watching in sports ball land, Steve? I've been watching any sports ball. I've been so I, as you, you know as you know I, I just I haven't been doing anything. I've just been on vacation for months. 
Yes, it's true. Well, okay. What about in the, I know you never stop entirely watching quality TV. I have not seen it yet. Have you watched WandaVision? No. You're not a Marvel Comics Universe guy, are you? No. I don't understand. <laughs> is, is it sort of that, is it the ineffable pop line between sci-fi? Because I know you love you, the Star Wars and the Star Treks and all the rest. Is the sort of the superhero genre? What about fantasy genre? Is that also just sort of out of scope for you? Yeah, I'm really, I'm a pretty sort of you know milk and potato or, or a, a meat and potatoes sci-fi guy. But all right, well at least at least we got the expanse. Um, speaking of science fiction, should we talk about the the NFC Championship game? <laughs> um, you, uh, Tom Brady or Aaron Rodgers? Go. I don't want to root for either of them. Um, really? Yeah. Um, I guess just just for the heck of it, just, just for the sort of amusement value, I guess I'll root for the Bucks. Um, you know the Packers. I mean, whatever the Packers are always good. Like this, you know, why not? Why not? Why not? Like, give, you know, see if Brady can get can pull off one last hurrah. Uh, I hear it's going to be snowing. I want to see a snowy Lambeau Field, Aaron Rodgers MVP season trip to the Super Bowl. Uh, get him that Rodgers rate discount. You know- do you know the last time the Packers lost an NFC Championship game at home? Mm, no. To the Giants? <laughs> Which iteration? The Eli or Phil? Yeah, Eli. I, just, I don't remember who was Eli 1 or Eli 2. Well, uh, I think, okay, we're switching over to the AFC. Uh, the Mahomes situation, that's such a bummer. I mean, everybody's sad that. The, the marquee player is in a questionable status. Do you think you think it's pretty serious his injury? Is this going to potentially cause it not to be the real Kansas City Chiefs? Yeah, and, and I have to say, I mean, I love Patrick Mahomes. And I love the Chiefs. I'm really rooting for the Bills. Like, I just, I you know, no one circles the wagons like the Buffalo Bills. And I just, I, I really like Josh Allen. I like the, I like you know. I, I, I don't know that America is going to get terrifically excited about a Bills Bucks Super Bowl, but I am. <laughs> Pulling for that, uh, there. I, w- I will say that having the Bills in the Super Bowl is always, you know, sort of a eyebrow raising. Like, oh no, poor Buffalo, what's going to happen this Scott time? Um, yeah. By the way, I, I was correct. The last time the Packers lost an NFC Championship game at home was Eli won. Um, it was wow. the Brett Favre. It was the Brett Favre frozen game where the Giants um, miraculously pulled out a squeaker in overtime. Wow! 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 All right. Well, let's hope there's some close games there. Uh, and I don't think you are following too closely the UT football coaching change. Do you have any opinions about our, our coach, Coach Sark, Sarkazian? I have one and you're not going to like it. You're not a fan? Okay, I have two and you're not going to like either of them. <laughs> oh, no. Okay, lay them on me and then I'll, I'll try to rebut. One, I'm not a fan. Two, so we are paying Tom Herman and his coaching staff $24 million not to coach the University of Texas football team. Um, Are you saying that's a New York Mets style move? So listen, I know that are that these are different pots of money, and I know that what I'm about to say is completely irrational. I'm going to say it anyway. In a year in which we had no faculty raises, we're spending $24 million to pay a football coach to not coach our football team. Bothers me a little bit. I hear you. Um, no staff raises either. Uh, but as you say, it, it, it is not money that was available for anything else. And indeed, I don't claim to know anything about the inside mechanics of how the fundraising around this works, but I this is pure speculation, but I would not be surprised if that tab was provided 
and that it's a revenue neutral or or funding really thing. You think you think it's revenue neutral? That the, yeah, that if some donor can, I don't know this, but I, I have this vague impression that sometimes in situations like this, there are donations made to offset the cost of exactly this sort of thing to make it possible money that did not belong even to the athletic department otherwise. Right, so, um, so, I, again, let me underscore. I have no idea if that happened here. I've, I've not even seen a report about it, but maybe that is what happened. So, so on, on substance, I'm just going to say like, um, Sarkeesian strikes me as an offensive guy, like an offense guru. Um, I, I, you know, when I look at our football team over the last couple of years, offense has not been our defect. We've had so many though. Look, I'm excited. I think actually he, his ability to cast a, uh, an aura of first tier SEC level recruitment and so forth. I think that's a big part of what they're seeking. And some of the early signs are there. There may well be some payout on that. Um, what I what I want to dwell on though, just for a second, is I think it's really cool that someone who struggled with the demon in the bottle so horrifically, publicly, and catastrophically as he did. And for those who don't know, he was the coach at USC. He's an alcoholic, and he flamed out publicly in, you know, sort of like a Tony Stark sort of way, um, in Los Angeles, it was terrible. And he has built his life back. It's, it's, I think always great to see someone really succeeding when given, succeeding when given the second chance, which coach Saban gave him in Alabama and he made the most of it. And now he's, uh, everything I've heard him say, he, he sounds like someone who's, who picked up the hard way, a lot of wisdom about challenges uh, <laughs> Very successful people, when they have more success and they're ready to handle, um, that might be a very subtle but important quality for a coach, for coaching in a you know sort of a high stakes program like UTs. Anyways, I'm real excited about him. I can't wait to see where this goes. Truth was, uh, Tom Herman may not have deserved in X's nose terms uh, to be shuffled along because UT had a lot of success on him, but the recruiting impact about recruit beliefs that he was not there for the long haul and or wasn't the solution was becoming catastrophic for UT recruiting with people bailing out who'd committed and recommitting to other universities. Um, and so he was, the team was heading in a pretty tough direction at that point. And it kind of, I think that kind of forced the administration's hand. Anyways, um, hard to believe we're talking about college, college amateur athletics, isn't it? Speaking uh, of I like Speaking of which, I think Texas in the legislative session is working on a name, image, and likeness bill so these uh, players can start getting at least uh, an increased percentage of benefit from the tremendous revenues that they do, in fact, uh, generate. That would be nice. It'll be very interesting to see. All right. I feel like we've run the course. Is there anything else? That's, I think that's plenty. It's a standard issue, one hour and 10 minute episode. Seriously. It's like the old. All right. Um, and hey, class is start next week, so we're going to have to pick a new regular recording time. I know. So you've got Fed Courts. Uh, I've got Intelligence Five of my Law. Friends. Um, I'm excited because I've spent lots of time recently uh, updating my, my homebrew teaching materials, and we'll be putting that out there as a free book, just as I did with my book on cybersecurity law and policy. This That's is awesome. Law of the intelligence community. It's uh, it's worth what you pay for it, but it'll be up on SSRN at some point, just as a as a PDF that anyone who's interested to follow along or 
kind of you know examine it themselves in whole or in part, or God forbid, adopted his teaching materials. I don't want to. I don't want to can- cannibalize the big book. The big book, folks, is Dykus, Banks, Vladik, and uh, Berman now. And and is Raven Hansen still on it? Is is Peter still on y'all's book? Yeah. So it's 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 all of us and Emily now. Yeah, that's awesome. What a great acquisition. Emily's Emily's awesome. In fact, I have I have some Emily stuff in my my homebrew intelligence law book. Excellent. All right. We'll turn everybody loose. Um, on that note, he's at Bobby Chesney. I'm at Steve underscore Vladek. We're at NSL Podcast. Go Bucks and Bills. Um, I'd say stay safe out there, and I mean it, but you know, stay, stay, stay safely out there. Enjoy, enjoy your safeness out there. Adiosly? Uh, Adiosly. Adiosness? Adiosness. <laughs> <laughs>